Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. I have heard that saying many, many times. And in a great irony this past week, I decided that I would just share with you a little tidbit of information about that particular quote. I have always heard that the sentiment was expressed by Albert Einstein. In fact, I figure I've said plenty of times, as Albert Einstein once said, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Well, this week, in preparation for the message, I decided that I would do some research into that quotation. I was hoping maybe to find out from someone the circumstances in which Einstein said those words. What I found was Michael Becker, who was the editor of the Bozeman Daily Chronicle in Bozeman, Montana, had, made, had put that quote into one of his editorials and decided to do exactly the same thing that I was doing. And he started researching, trying to figure out what the context was in which Einstein said those words. He could find no reference anywhere to Einstein ever having said those words. It had just been kind of commonly assumed. He did find, however, the first time it appears that the saying showed up in print. Most likely, we can trace the quotation back to an author by the name of Rita May Brown in a murder mystery that she wrote that was published in 1983 called Sudden Death. She was writing about a fictional character named Jane Fulton. The passage from the book reads, Unfortunately, Susan didn't remember what Jane Fulton once said. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. Well, following on in the spirit of the quotation, I would have to suppose that attributing the saying to Einstein over and over again that he didn't say has to be crazy. And yet, we persist. I think that regardless of the source, we see the truth of the saying. Only someone who has lost their sense of reality will do 
same result over and over and over again. And yet, far too often, our unwillingness to challenge ourselves, our ideas, and our traditions keeps us doing the same things we always have done, believing the same things that we've always believed without trying to figure out why. Living by the same values we've always lived by without asking the central question, is this true? We're living in times that are certainly unsettling, to say the least. In addition to a virus that has affected tens of millions of around the world and now has killed nearly one million people worldwide. In all likelihood, according to Johns Hopkins count, the number of people who have died around the world from the COVID-19 virus will probably exceed one million today. In addition to the challenges from a viral pandemic, we have seen a breakdown in civility. We have seen violence in our streets. We have heard people once again talk about the scourge of racism.
on the book written by Erwin Lutzer called The Church in Babylon. And it's talking primarily referring back to the book of Jeremiah at what God told the Jews to do when they faced a hostile culture as they were taken away as exiles into Babylon. It's amazing when you read what God told the Jews through Jeremiah, how apropos those same teachings are today to Christians, to those who are part of the church, living in a hostile culture. As I was reading through the book a couple of weeks ago, I had a disturbing thought. And that was, why are we still talking about this? God's people faced a hostile culture 2,500 years ago, God gave direction on how his people were to live. Why do we need to hear it again? It's because we keep doing the same things over and over and over again. Living according to the same attitudes, falling into the same traps, while all the while expecting a different result. In these challenging days that we face today, there have got to be some changes. Some changes have to come if we are going to be the people that God has called us to be in a culture that is hostile in many different ways. If we're going to carry out our calling as Christians in 21st century America, in 21st century Richmond, we've got to make some changes. Otherwise, we're going to have the same result again. So what are some of the changes that must come? I think God challenged some of the ingrained attitudes in Jonah as he challenged Jonah to change his mind in the fourth chapter of the book of Jonah. Let's hear what the text says. In order to set the stage, you have to look at the verse preceding the fourth chapter. Remember, Jonah went finally and preached the message that God had given him. Forty days Nineveh will be destroyed. And in result, as a result of that shocking statement, much to Jonah's dismay, we'll find out. People of Nineveh repented. They asked for forgiveness. And in verse 10 of chapter 3, we read, God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, 
and he did not do it. So in other words, he spared the city because the people of Nineveh repented. So chapter 4 gives us Jonah's reaction and God's response. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Here are these people, 120,000 people in the city of Nineveh, repented of their sin. God spared them. Jonah probably was one of the most successful evangelists that's ever walked the face of the earth. Imagine a city of 120,000 being totally transformed as a result of the message that you proclaim. Wow. You would expect that Jonah would be riding on cloud nine, but no. Jonah was angry. He said, God, you told me to go preach to these people, and I didn't want to do it. For those who thought Jonah was afraid, Jonah says that wasn't the case at all. I just knew that if I went and delivered your message, these people would repent, you would save them, and that's not what I want. So when you told me to go and preach in Nineveh, I went the other way. Now, lo and behold, I come, I do what you said, and you save the city. Just go ahead and kill me now. What a ridiculous response. We would almost think we were looking at some kind of a, a comedy he wasn't so serious about it. The Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? Come on, Jonah. Does this make any sense? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in the shade to see what would happen to the city. So in other words, Jonah started thinking, well, maybe God sees how angry I am and how disappointed I am. Maybe I'm important enough to God that he'll hear me and go ahead and destroy these so-and-sos anyway. So he goes and sits outside the city to wait and see what's going to happen. The Lord God appointed a plant. And it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head, to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. He's greatly displeased that God saved all these people, but he's greatly pleased with a plant that has given him shade. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. 
The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. So for the second time in the story, Jonah says, kill me now. First time, you didn't kill all those people, God. Kill me now. Now, my shade plant died. Kill me now. Then God asked Jonah a second question. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I am angry enough to die. So the Lord said, You cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in the night and perished in the night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. You expect more of the story. You expect Jonah to say, well, Lord, I guess you're right. Maybe I was hasty. That's where the story ends. That's where Jonah's story ends, as far as his usefulness to God. There are reports of Jonah in the Old Testament before he was sent to Nineveh. But none after. And he's mentioned in the New Testament, but not as a prophet of God, but rather as one who survived three days in the belly of a fish. What a tragic end to a story with so much potential. Father, but his father will have none of it. 
reestablishes his son's place in the family. It's similarities. God spoke to Jonah and he told him to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was not the place Jonah wanted to go, so he went in the other direction. And after a terrible storm, and a little while spent in the belly of a fig, <coughs> Jonah acknowledges God. God spares him and restores his role as a prophet. Now notice I said Jesus' story really is the story of the prodigal son's world because there's an older boy and he has stayed at home. He's done everything the father asked him to do. He's worked hard in the fields. He's been faithful. But when he hears the sounds of the party and finds out that his father has restored his younger brother, he's had all he can take. And he refuses to go in. And in anger, he stays outside the party. When the father comes out to get the boy to come in, he won't even acknowledge his brother's identity. He says, I've been faithful. I've done everything you've asked of me. And you've never even allowed me to have a party for my friends. But when this son of yours goes out and wastes a good third of your wealth, he comes home, and you throw the biggest party we've ever seen. He won't even acknowledge his brother. He calls the young man your son. And so at the end of the story, he is still outside the house, fuming. A prodigal son. Interestingly enough, both of those roles are fulfilled by Jonah. Because in chapter 4, he is exactly like the older brother in Jesus' parable. Both Jonah and the older brother they need to change their attitudes if there was going to be complete and total victory in the story. And the same thing is true for us. God was telling the Pharisees exactly what he was telling Jonah. You have to change if you're going to join me what I do. And I really believe that, that God is calling us in the church in the 21st century to change, to repent. 
to shake off some of the things that have prevented us from being the kind of salt and light that God has called us to be and allow us to be the ones through whom he accomplishes his purpose. What are some of those changes that I may need to have? I think we get some clues from this fourth chapter of Jonah. I think first we need to understand that needed change happens when we acknowledge our destructive attitudes. Jonah was willing to see God destroy 120,000 people because he saw them as people outside the family, people different from him. People who had somehow or another wounded his people. God looked at him and said, Jonah, are you right in thinking this way? He was calling Jonah to repent of a destructive attitude that saw other human beings as the enemy rather than as people created by God. It was more important to Jonah to be right, to have his righteous anger and indignation validated by God than it was to see 120,000 lives saved. And that calls us to ask the question, what is more important to you? What's more important to me? Is it more important to be proven right? Or is it more important see people blessed. Martin Luther King Jr., 1963, said, I have a dream that one day my children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. He was striking out at the idea, the horrible idea, that just because of one's appearance and one's culture, people could some one group of people could somehow be judged inferior to another. What a ridiculous idea. And yet it still persists today. Even if we're not militant about those kinds of things, we need to look at those destructive attitudes. And attack them at their root, the human heart. Hundreds of people still die every day in this country because of the coronavirus. We still have people who say, I'm not going to take those precautions. After all, if I get it, it probably won't be that bad. 
or two people say that this past week. I might as well just go ahead and get it. I'll get over it more likely than not. But what about all the other people who catch it because you have it? It's the attitude that says, as long as it doesn't hurt me, then I'll do whatever I please. And we forget about our responsibility for one another. And I am embarrassed as someone who has called me a preacher of the gospel that there are those who stand in pulpits today who think that it's more important to sing with a mask off than it is to care for the well-being We've got to get rid of these selfish, destructive attitudes. We have to ask God to change our hearts so that we can demonstrate the compassion of Christ. Now, in order to do that, we have to change the way we see people. Because needed change comes when we see people, not objects. People, not parties. People, not groups. But individuals, human beings created in the image of God. Human beings for whom Christ died. Human beings with mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and friends. Human beings with aspirations who love just like everyone else loves. Not as the enemy or the other group or them. In Jonah's day, the Gentiles. Things change when we see human beings as human beings. On December 7th, 1914, Pope Benedict XV suggested that there be a ceasefire in World War I for Christmas. The leaders of the countries who were at war flatly rejected the idea. But when Christmas Eve 1914 came around, the soldiers in the trenches had a little bit different idea as the sun went down and it got dark on Christmas Eve. British soldiers in the trenches on one side began hearing German soldiers on the other side singing Christmas carols. And so they joined in and they started singing as well. The next morning, Christmas Day, December 25th, 1914, 
Some of those German soldiers cautiously made their way out of the trenches and began walking on the battlefield toward the other side. The soldiers on the other side were cautious. Maybe it's a trick. But the German soldiers had worked at learning Merry Christmas in all the different languages that would have been represented in trenches. And they shouted Merry Christmas to the other side. So some of the Allied soldiers began making their way out of the trenches on that side. And before long, they were met face to face on the battlefield, shaking hands, some embracing, exchanging gifts of cigarettes and plum pudding. You know that was the British. It is said that there was even a pickup soccer game that happened. If a table had been set up that day on that battlefield, and the human beings who were looking one another in the eye had been given a pen, I am convinced that World War I would have ended that moment. Because they were looking in the eyes of human beings, not the enemy. But that's not what happened. Instead, those leaders who wouldn't even call a ceasefire kept the war going. It dragged on for seven more years and 40 million lives among soldiers and civilians When we see people as ideas or parties or groups and don't see them as individuals, as human beings, it makes it easy for us to make tragic decisions. Jonah saw the enemy in Nineveh. He cared more about a plant than he did about 120,000. See, needed change happens when we allow God to attack our destructive attitudes. It happens when we start seeing people and not objects. Because then that it helps us to exchange compassion for condemnation. survey was done by the Barn Research Group over the past few months. And they found that among pastors, about 60% of those interviewed said that when all of the restrictions for the COVID-19 uh, pandemic are removed, 60% of pastors throughout America think that a significant number of the folks in their congregations not come back. That they've gotten comfortable staying at home or watching services online and they won't come back to the churches. I'm not that pessimistic. But one of the reasons 
reasons I believe that there is a perceived lack of fervor for the church today is because Christians are viewed in the culture at large as those who are far too ready to condemn and find it far too difficult to show compassion. We can show compassion for those who are suffering, but sometimes it's harder to show compassion for those who believe differently than we do. God wants to work a change in our hearts that transforms our thinking so that we see people with compassion instead of condemnation. When I look at the story of Jonah, it almost looks like a cartoon to me. No human being would ever be so foolish. And yet here we are. Fighting the same battles that we fought 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 250 years ago, 2,500 years ago. May God grant that this time we allow the Spirit to change our hearts and make us more like Jesus. We don't have to compromise what we believe. We just have to change the way we see others. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your love and your amazing grace. We confess that it is very, very easy to receive your love, and sometimes it's a challenge to show it. But I pray, Father, that you will so transform us that we will see your light in our lives and others will see your light and your love through us. In Jesus' name we pray.